Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. What is going on, you guys? For this episode, we're going to cover the Ukraine conflict as it applies to United States foreign policy, and we're going to address three dates as relevant today, 1938, 1919, and 1975, as it relates to the foreign policy of the United States in terms of funding the Ukraine war with Russia. As many of you know, I've been very critical of the United States policy um, as it apl- as it applies to the war in Russia. But I think there's a lot of different reasons to be critical of it. But in my view, the most blatant failure is its public justification for why we are spending to the tune of $100 billion to support the military efforts of Ukraine. And I'll make some nuance here, and I think that there may be some some parts of military aid that may make sense, but certainly not how it's done and not how the public justification has been done in terms of the messaging to the public writ large. So why am I going to focus on 1938? Um, 1938 is the year of the so-called Munich peace deal between Britain and Germany relating to the Sudetenland. And this is something that is almost always cited as one of the principal bases for a lot of wars, but in particular, this particular funding as it applies to the Ukraine because that is almost the sole justification. And so we're gonna ask that important question, is in fact this situation similar enough to the the situation faced by Britain in 1938, such that it's even relevant precedent? And I'm a lawyer by day, uh, and so I'm gonna argue what I think is I think more relevant precedent for moving forward, and that would be 1975, I'll get into why that is, and we'll reemphasize the incompetence and incoherence of Woodrow Wilson, who I think was one of the worst presidents of the 20th century, um, based upon the 14 points at the Versailles Treaty in 1919. So we're going to get into all those topics, and we are going to be a little critical. Um, and one of the reasons why a lot of you are probably saying, like, oh, my God, why do we want to listen to you on Ukraine? What the hell do you know? Well, all I can tell you people is go to the New York Times, go to NBC, go to even Fox News, all the websites, and see if there's any meaningful debate on the sheer amount of aid that has been given to Ukraine, essentially with no strings attached and nearly no debate. There's one person that I can see that uh, that has kind of been very critical, um, which is Tucker Carlson of Fox News, um, but you know, Tucker, I have not seen even Fox News writ large 
really arguing the same things, nor have I seen it on CNN, the left, the right. There are a few outliers here, but I've seen almost no debate. And so I'm going to debate that question because I think this policy is incoherent, incompetent, and I think that there's a lot of reasons to criticize it, especially at least in terms of the public justification for it. So, and again, I emphasize if any of you are listening to the Ukraine, I'm not against Ukraine. I'm not against your right to defend yourself. And I'm not against your right to fight Russia. The question is where it, I'm a resident of the United States, a citizen of the United States, whether it's in our interest to risk a, poten a potential nuclear exchange, because I do believe that that is one of the most important points here to allow you to defend essentially, at least at this point, it seems to be two provinces, Luhansk and, and Donetsk, which are two provinces in the eastern part of Ukraine with 80 to 90% Russian-speaking populations. So let's get into the Munich conference, because as far as I can tell, this is almost always it, the, the policy justification for aid to Ukraine is really based upon two points. And of course, there's a humanitarian piece of it, but that's that's not the reason why we're spending $100 billion. And that's not even really why they've articulated. Of course, they think it's the right thing to do, but they've not engaged in such support for other countries involved in territorial disputes. And so, for example, during the Falkland Wars, we did not go to war with Britain um, to prevent them from taking territory from that have been traditionally recognized by Argentina. We just kind of let them settle it out. There's all sorts of territorial disputes that the United States has completely stayed out of. The reason and the reason that's just that's offered by Biden and a lot of these uh, uh, policy architects is that if we don't stand tough and stand firm here, we could find ourselves in New York speaking Russian, or at the very least, you know, if so, if he takes Ukraine, then he's going to use that as a foundation to take over all of Europe. And of course, the obvious precedent to this is the Munich Peace Conference. So most of you probably already know that about this. This took place in 1938. And the argument is, is that if we don't hold the line here, we're going to see a conflagration of even greater magnitude if we don't hold the line here because of this Munich precedent. And it's largely viewed as a lesson in history. That is Neville Chamberlain, who was the uh, prime minister at the time, gave in and did a treaty with Adolf Hitler, one of the most evil persons of the 20th century, to try to avoid a larger conflict. And he uh, persuaded Czechoslovakia to give up some territory in the Sudetenland, which was a largely German-speaking part of Czechoslovakia. And of course, we all know what happened. They did the peace deal. The Czech Republic, Czechoslovakia fell shortly thereafter. World War II happened, and the next he went to Poland. And, and then, of course, World War II happened, and we saw one of the worst um, world wars in the history of the world. Um, I, between World War I and World War II, which is worse, they were both huge. World War II was probably broader in scope, more casualties, and more disastrous. And so the thought process is, you know, the thought process is, is that Neville Chamberlain largely 
in world history is seen as kind of naive and gullible. And that decision to make a compromise was a disaster, emboldening Hitler and allowing him to think that he could take out the world without out consequence leading to Poland, which then, of course, led France and Britain to declare war against Poland. And this is widely viewed as a lesson of history. But here's why I don't think that um, that is the right. I, I, I think it is, it's a relevant lesson in history to consider. So I'm not saying we should ignore it. I, I thought about uh, uh, calling this particular podcast putting Munich to bed because it is so often used as a justification for exceedingly bad foreign policy interventions that I think we should put it to bed. Well, of course, I don't think we can ignore Munich because I do think it's true. And even I would, as critical as I have been in uh, of the United States foreign policy as it applies to Ukraine, even I would acknowledge that there is a line that if Putin crossed, we would be forced to potentially go to war and yes, even risk the nuclear exchange. So I'm not saying whether there is a line that he would cross, but the question is, is whether this line is the line to cite as precedent in terms of the line between Ukraine and Russia, whether that's similar enough to what happened in 1938 as to say that, yeah, this is why we need to risk a nuclear exchange based upon, largely at this point, I think, I think Putin would probably go for a peace deal that would allow him to keep Lohansk and Donetsk. And so the first point that I think that I don't think a lot of people are really thinking of is that even if Vladimir Putin wanted to attack all of Europe with conventional arms, is there anyone with a brain that thinks he would even be close to being able to do it? So he, we, we may have that fear, but this notion that if we don't hold the line here, that all of a sudden tanks are going to start rolling into Hungary and Poland, I, I think makes no sense whatsoever. I mean, look at the state of the Russian military at this point. They simply do not have logistical control. They don't have the men. They don't have the resources. They're using the, the Wagner Group, um, which is essentially a paramilitary organization of convicts. Their logistical challenges in the Ukraine have been a disaster. Uh, they've had trouble supplying the troops. So I don't think there's any way, shape, or form, to the extent that that's the reason we're doing what we're doing, that that is the relevant um, precedent. I, I just don't think that's going to happen. And in fact, one of the reasons why Peter um, Zion, who I talked about in my previous podcast, uh, articulated a reason to support Ukraine now, because if we don't, the, the Russian forces are so conventionally bad that they would be forced to use nukes. Now, I, I still don't really get that line of thought that all of a sudden they're going to use nukes knowing that that's going to lead to a nuclear exchange on their own territory by a conventionally superior force. Because I don't think anyone doubts that the United States would win in a conventional conflict with Russia at least certainly they would be able to hold the line and Russia would not be able to invade. Um, the military of the United States is far superior in Europe. It's, I think it's a closer call. But the bottom line is, is that that would be so unlikely to have happened. The other thing that, you know, I think is often lost, and I don't know if I'm sure there's some 
academics that are out there. I'm not, I'm not here to defend Neville Chamberlain, uh, but let, let me just add a couple different details to that, that I, I think in retro, I and mean, we all know what Hitler did in World War II, right? In terms of the, the sheer evil, but the question is not what he subsequently did, but the question is, is what did we know at the time? We knew he was a nationalist. Um, we did not, we knew he was a bad actor and a hyper toxic nationalist. And, and of course he had engaged in some, uh, you know, questionable actions. I think by that time, the, um, the uh, uh, attack on a lot of Jewish businesses had already been public. So we knew that there was this element to him, but we did not know how bad he was. And the question facing Chamberlain at the time was, and you think about it, this has to be the case because had they really been aware of how evil he was, do you think they would have cut the peace deal as they did? He was trying to avoid a larger European war. And the question is, is even if he got burned, which he subsequently was, the point is, is that put the ball in Hitler's court to then galvanize Europe against him? And he did. So had, say, for example, there been no deal and the, he went into the Sudetenland, which is traditionally German speaking, and tried to conquer that particular area, would have there been the, the, the unanimous opposition to that in the way in which he went about that. So I, I think that there's some nuance there, uh, you know, even though we all know in hindsight that that was the wrong decision, to say that there's no reason to push the pause button to prevent a larger conflict, I think is very significant. Um, so, and the, and the second piece is, here's the other piece that we really haven't talked about, the obvious piece, which is, what if Hitler would have had nukes? Okay, same question. Would have it been worth it to go to war, knowing that likely your entire area could be decimated if you did go to war? Now, there does come a point where a lot of you are like, oh my gosh, you must be so afraid of nukes. No, I'm not. I'm not actually. I, I am not worried about that. But I just think there's no reason to unnecessarily expose yourself to that risk. Uh, unless you have a compelling justification to do that. Now, obviously, if there's a nuclear exchange, you've got to use nukes, right? Obviously, if there was a superior conventional force about ready to invade the United States, yeah, of course. I mean, there, there are lines to be drawn, to be crossed. But this particular line, um, I mean, it, it, just, it just does not make any sense. So the extent that you're using Munich as your uh, as your policy justification, I think you gotta you gotta provide another example, because really what it is is it's essentially the domino theory 2.0, which is you know in the Vietnam conflict that if you don't stop Ho Chi Minh in Vietnam, all of Southeast Asia is going to become communist. Right, that was the nearly the linchpin of United States foreign policy during that time. If we don't fight Ho Chi Minh in Hanoi, he's gonna he's gonna go to Washington, DC. And the Reds are gonna be all of a sudden, we're all gonna be singing the Russian national anthem. I mean, that was the logic. Fight him there rather than here. And by the way, this was, you know, you talk about, oh, what are your credentials? You're not like Victoria Newland 
who is this undersecretary of state who went to Brown. What the hell, where have you studied? What do you know? Well, keep in mind during the Vietnam conflict, the best of the best were driving United States foreign policy in Vietnam. The top, the most highly educated people in the United States, the ones that had gone to all the elite schools, studied all the prestigious, had all the prestigious degrees, and they all told us that this is essential for United States interest, number one. Number two, the reason why we're doing it is so that we can prevent the spread of this nefarious thing called communism. And then if we don't stop it, it's going to expand. So this gets to our 1975 um, date. What happened in 1975? Well, Gerald Ford was president. Gerald Ford died today. I was born in 1975. Now, you know, I'm I'm a little maybe I'm just trying to give 1975 some 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 legs here. You know, it was like the age of mullets and big huge gas guzzlers and Gerald Ford was president. I don't think he even had disco yet. Like this is kind of like this is not a cultural moment, except that Rockney Cole was born in 1975. So that's count for something. What happened in 1975? Uh the Vietnam War ended. And let's look at what happened after that. Not internally. I'm not going to get into the details of what happened inside of Vietnam. But what happened afterwards? Did Ho Chi Minh start sending emissaries throughout Latin America? And did he start trying to take over the Philippines? I think he had already died by then. But you know what I'm saying. His, his acolytes. Did they start sending in various agents to try to take over all of Southeast Asia? Did all of Southeast Asia become communist um, after that particular time? Uh, did the Southeast Asia all of a sudden become this area where you had to be a commie in order to be able to survive? Actually, no, none of that happened. And of course, I'm aware of what happened in Cambodia, right, in Laos. But a lot of that was due to the destabilization associated with the American conflict uh, that may or may not have happened without the United States intervention. Uh, so, of course, I'm aware of that. But in terms of the parade of horribles that were offered as the policy justification for the war, almost none of them came true. So we spent all of this time, all of these men, all of this energy on a conflict that ultimately was not winnable. And, and, and the domino theory did not occur. So to the extent we're arguing Munich as relevant precedent, okay, I'm going to raise you with the end of the Vietnam War, because I think that also is relevant precedent, insofar as... All of the policy experts told us what would happen if we didn't support Vietnam, right? That we had to keep this state alive, South Vietnam alive, or, or the entire Southeast Asia would collapse. And maybe even we would have commies in the streets of the United States. That's what we were told all of those years. And none of that turned out to be true. That's the issue 
And a lot of you are saying, oh, my God, this is so much different than Vietnam. No wonder why you're not in charge of foreign policy. Um, but I, I think it is relevant in the sense that the one obvious difference is the Ukrainians are a strong and wonderful people, and they are fighting for their survival. But one of the ways that it's similar, that it appears very clear to me, without the military arms and equipment the United States is, is, is providing, Ukraine would not be able to exist. Uh, well, they would be able to exist, but they would not be able to put up the type of defense that they have. They're not an independently viable state able to defend themselves. They need the help of the United States, which gets to my second point of, uh, and in that sense, they are similar to South Vietnam. South Vietnam could not exist without the help of the United States. I think the same thing is true with Ukraine. So this gets to the second um, huge policy problem here that we have with our foreign policy there, which is we are not placing any public strings on the aid, the military aid that has been provided to Ukraine. Now, obviously, I think we've made very clear, and I think there's been some public comments to this effect, that they can't use the military equipment to provoke Russia. So they at least have that much of a clue, at least for now, right? There are some hawks that are talking about, well, maybe we should start attacking Russian military bases. Uh, maybe, and, and by Russia, this includes Crimea, right? So maybe they're going to start trying to retake Crimea, which is a disputed territory between Ukraine and Russia. And so there's that string. But publicly, um, my view, and this this comes down to Ukraine, is they're basically saying, this is the quote from Victoria Newland, um, only the Ukrainians can set their warrants. So they so the United so so we have these public comments by our genius policymakers. Number one, we will support Ukraine as long as it takes. Number one. And number two, only the Ukrainians can set the policy aims of their war. And they're the only ones that can do that. And whatever they decide to do, we're going to keep funneling them arms. That particular foreign policy is so breathtakingly ignorant and naive, I don't even know where to begin to start. If we're keeping you viable as a state, sorry, we're going to negotiate what the terms of the end of the war should be, and we should be dictating that, not Ukraine. Now, Ukraine, before you get all angry about that, you're free to reject aid. You don't have to accept it. You can rely upon other allies, You can you you and you can accept the aid, but you can't have it both ways. You can't say, we're going to retake Ukraine, you, uh, uh, Crimea, we're going to retake Luhansk, we're going to retake Donetsk, and then at the same time, say, give us, give, gimme, 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 gimme. That is not a viable foreign policy. And that gets to something very interesting. Um, and this gets to Woodrow Wilson. Um, the more and more I look at Woodrow Wilson, uh, he is kind of the classic. I mean, I, I give him credit. I mean, he did become president of the United States. So I got to give him something. But he is kind of the classic dysfunctional intellectual that ha I have a series of principles. He has a series of principles that make no sense and are incoherent in practice and can be literally read by both sides to justify even 
the current conflict. So in my previous podcast, I talked about like the Versailles Treaty, where they so effectively humiliated the German people. Here's another interesting counter positive example. What would have happened had they done a peace treaty? Yes, that would have disarmed Germany after World War One, but not totally humiliated them, right? Given a little bit more of a territorial concession. What would have happened if they would have done that? Would have there even been the political space for an evil maniac like Hitler to arise? I would argue no. And that what happened in World War II to allow him to get in power in the first place was the direct cause by the incompetence of people like Woodrow Wilson. Now you look at his principles. One of his principles is self-determination. Now, this is a great idea, and that is the peoples of the world that are traditionally defined as nations have the right for self-determination to have their own state, right? This is a central principle of the text of the 14 points, which were presented to Congress in 1918 and provided the basic framework for the, the peace treaty of the Versailles. And as a result of that, was used to carve up um, certain parts of the empire, because we all agree that empires are bad, and allow individual ethnicities that function essentially as a nation within a nation state to get the state and, and make it and wield it together with the nation itself. Okay. So what's the problem with that? How do you define nation? Is it based upon ethnicity? Or is it based upon the nation state's definition of what they think nationhood is? And if you look at that way, you're thinking, okay, on the one hand, the 14 points state that the nation should be able to manifest itself as a state. Uh, even over the objections of the nation state that controls it. So a place like Czech, the Czech Republic or the Slovak Republic, they were fused into Czechoslovakia and they were considered similar enough that they could have their own nation state. Other parts of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Hungarians were bound by their nation and that was created of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And how did they define that? They defined it on things like language, and ethnicity. Well, I thought we couldn't take any of that into consideration. And what is old Vlad articulating as one of his basis for this issue? Self-determination as to the future nation state of Russia. And that cuts both ways. Not only are there Russian speakers within the Russian Federation, there are also traditional nations that exist within the territorial boundaries of what we know as the country of Russia, places like Chechnya. Um, I believe there's a place called Tatarstan or something like that. And so this, if, if you follow this principle to its end result, this would lead to the immolation of Russia. And Russia sees the complete hypocrisy of the United States here. And, and this is a Biden, by the way. I think there are a lot of smart people in the United States that, that think that his policy is incompetent and incoherent. And I'm serious. I would rather have plumbers 
than these foreign policy geniuses from John Hopkins, people like John Bolton and Victoria Newland. Sorry, they they are incompetent and they do horrible foreign policy. So let's take an example of, for example, Hawaii. That was a nation in the United States that existed merely 100 to 125 years ago. They had a king, they had their own nation. And we took them over and they became part of the United States. Does anyone with a straight face, if we're all about protecting and territorial integrities, well then don't we have to restore the nation of Hawaii? Why don't we have a referendum on that? And we just gotta let them go? Well, that, that's the ultimate logic of the Biden foreign policy, let them go. What about places like Guam? They don't belong to the United States. I mean, they do technically, but if they want it, their independence, Puerto Rico, I think, I think we'd probably let Puerto Rico go. I don't, I don't know. What about the indigenous people, nations? Should we allow them to decide their own? Now, that, now they're technically our nations, but they're subject to the sovereignty of the federal government. So that's not a true nation state as such. We can't use force to impose our own concept of territorial boundaries. Oh, yeah? What do you think the Mexican-American War was? That was a war of conquest. All of the lines in Middle East, nearly all of them, were decided by uh, the Europeans in a completely arbitrary way that doesn't make any sense based upon the principles of the 14 points. So, I mean... The policy, at least in terms of people like Biden, is completely incompetent, it is completely incoherent, and it is not worthy of our trust. And we should question uh, that particular uh, justification that's been used. And so that's what I want to see is, and, and, then, and then you apply the concept of self-determination to the Soviet Union. Ironically, the Soviet Union was one of the first, uh, Russia at the time, was one of the first people to call for this concept of self-determination. And as it applies to Ukraine and the former socialist, socialist republics, I'm sorry, it is complicated. The state collapsed and things that were part of the nation state, uh, republics that were part of the nation state of the Soviet Union were allowed to go free um, with express assurances that if they did go free, they would not become the sphere of NATO. And again, you can say, oh, well, NATO would never attack. And I think that's probably reasonable, but I don't think it's totally unreasonable to say that there would never be use of force by NATO um, as it applies to Russia, or that they couldn't put, imagine if all of a sudden they put essentially a, an Air Force base or missiles on the Ukrainian territory, ostensibly for self-defense purposes, and Taterstan broke away, and the same arguments were used to support the Taters, and that they would then all of a sudden have the support of the international community. How do you decide to support Ukraine, but not the, the Taters, um, or Tatars? I don't know how what the hell they're called. But I think these, these are the valid questions. And so I guess the issue is, is we need to have a debate um, in my view, I think the more relevant precedent actually is Vietnam. And a lot of you are, are scratching your head and saying, no way, that's not the case. But keep in mind, that was exactly the sort of incremental policy where we started with military support. That was not enough. We had to give more. 
We had to give more training. We had to have advisors. And then they would make statements like there are no military boots on the ground. These were advisors. And so they were civilian. And then all of a sudden we realized the Vietnam's uh, Vietnamese, South Vietnamese could not contain the North Vietnamese. So at some point they had to put in soldiers. Right now, the Ukrainians are doing a good job, but it's like it's 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 a step by step increase in the amount of support. And the other question is, what would happen? Are we so confident that in order to uh, get peace, that if in fact the uh, there was a peace treaty and we could essentially say that Luhansk and Donetsk would be have to be next to Russia, and I know that that would be very painful for the Ukrainians in exchange for a peace deal. Um, are we so confident that that Russia would just look its wounds for a while and then start attacking the rest of the world? I don't think we have a, a lot of great choices there, but the point is, is that we have to have a debate in this country. And as far as I can tell, this policy is exposing us to unnecessary risk without the prospect of gain. And I think the other part of it is, is not only do I think that it is potentially uh, increasing the risk of nuclear weapons, think about it. Is it really helping out even the Ukrainian people themselves where they're now engaged in a stalemate that would not have occurred? And would they rather live, would, would they have rather have Luhansk part of Russia and the next part of Russia? And and have peace, or would they rather go on and have tens of thousands of people die every year? Because we're in a situation where, and I think this is the other thing too, with people like Janet Yellen, um, Joe Biden, they have given Vladimir Putin no way out, no way to save face. And when you do that and you and you close the, the the gap or the circle of influence on someone like that, you give him no way out. And so you have to, and even if you hope that the regime collapses, well, then you have to have a certain amount of stability during that time. So you can either occupy, I mean, that would just be a disaster. And so I just think that the risks associated with this far outweigh whatever the benefits are. And I'm not convinced at all that if in fact we didn't support them to the extent that we are, um, that the, the, all these bad things would happen. And I think conversely, by doing this sort of military support, we are unnecessarily exposing ourselves to risks that we don't need to expose ourselves to. So that's the summary. This is not 1938. Although it's a relevant precedent, I do not think it is relevant enough to be dispositive. My challenge to all foreign policy thinkers are next time you gotta use another example other than Munich. Let's, let's not put it to bed. It's relevant, we gotta think about it. And even I would acknowledge there is a line vis-a-vis -vis Russia that we would have to go to war over, right? I mean, if probably Poland would be a reasonable line, right? Um, maybe if they did, go all the way to the Western part of Ukraine, maybe maybe there could be some arguments there in terms of a line in the sand to be drawn. But the line that's being drawn as it's done now is, is wrong. So you gotta use an example other than Munich. And if you're gonna rely on borders and self-determination, well then Great Britain, you gotta let up with Northern Ireland. 
they got to go back to Ireland because they, that was traditionally part of Ireland and that was taken by conquest. Got to let Scotland go break Britain. Are you, are you willing to let them go? Maybe you will, maybe you won't. Um, within each one of these territories, Germany, uh, France, there are traditional nations that have, from time to time uh, expressed the desire for their own independent borders. In Spain, we have the Basque country. Italy, there are all sorts of regions in the north part of the country that have talked about secession. So if you want a proliferation of a many microstates, and if you're willing to allow them to secede without any backlash at all, United States, Hawaii, are you willing to willing to let them? Let's do a plebiscite. Let's do a referendum um, on that. You got to be able to articulate something other than that, and you got to be able to then subject yourself to that own analysis. Uh, so you got to use an example of the 1938 number one. Number two, uh, I think we're still dealing with the consequences of this incompetent policy by Woodrow Wilson in terms of the 14 points. I think it was horrible. And number three, we got to consider the time when all the experts, you know, they made all these boogeyman predictions and nothing happened. And that was in 1975, which to me is the more relevant precedent uh, to consider that it might just be possible that if Luhansk and Donetsk fell, the end of the world would not occur. And maybe Russia could get back to focusing on, it has enough irons in the fire in terms of maintaining the territory integrity of its own federation. So moving forward, um, and I guess I just, the other comment I wanted to make was, uh, you, know, the, you know, the appeasement, the other example that I think in terms of when appeasement made sense, the Irish cut appeased the British when they made a compromise and they carved out Northern Ireland in exchange for getting the freedom of the rest of the Irish Republic, right? Even though it was part of the Commonwealth for a while, then it became part of the Irish Republic. They made a compromise. So for every Munich in which the compromise turned out to be a disasters, there's tons of examples where the compromise was the right thing. The Good Friday Agreement that occurred in Northern Ireland uh, was a compromise between two parties. And at least so far, there's been 20 years of peace. Um, so there's been a lot of compromises that have occurred. Um, even the China-Taiwan policy, that also, um, to some degree, has been a compromise where we kind of recognize that, that China has sovereignty over Taiwan, but we kind of recognize it's sort of a separate state. And we kind of indicate we might go to war over it, we kind of not. So um, I think there's a lot of different nuances here that I'm not seeing articulated, with the exception of Tucker Carlson. I think he's been a, very much of a critic and a few other critics but certainly, if we're going to do this type of foreign policy, we need to have a we need to have strings attached, and we do need to set forth the public parameters of, you know, uh, we are going to decide this. Ukraine, you are losing your sovereignty by getting in bed with Biden. Trust me, you do not want to get in bed with this guy. Um, you're going to be worse off, and it's not going to be very healthy for you. So. Um, that is my other Ukraine uh, podcast. I'm probably I'm probably going to do these from time to time, especially in areas where I don't think there's any public debate. Um, you know, instead we get seemingly only one area of debate that is, and it's all pro-Ukraine. People like Peter Zion, I mean, are basically, you know, interlocked almost 100%. Now, again, it's it's also possible that the reason why there's unanimous opinion is that I'm wrong and they're all right and they're all just seeing this totally different. Um, but I am contrarian on this issue. I do not think it's sound policy. I don't think it's worth the risk. 
I don't think it's been um, cogently argued to the United States people. And as a result of that, I'm going to continue to speak my mind on that. And you'll be able to know. I'm, I'm still going to be the other podcast. I'm, I'm going to do, I think my next one I'm going to do on Catcher in the Rye. I'm also going to do it on a guy named Phil Stutz, who I think can be very helpful for some of you. Um, but so you can continue to, to tune in on uh, the Rockney cast. We're going to continue to do personal development, spiritual growth, um, you know, methods of being the best version of you. That's primarily what I'm interested in here to, to have this shared journey. Um, but we're going to occasionally detour and we're going to do topics, whatever, whatever the hell I find interesting. And, you know, if you don't like it, you don't have to tune in. So if you've made it this far, infinite gratitude to each and every one of you who has tuned into the Rockney cast, we're going to continue to put on high, high quality content. Please do give me positive reviews on Apple, Spotify, and all places where podcasts are heard and continue to give me, um, ideas, rockneypool at gmail.com, rockneycast at gmail.com. And I may even do a podcast or even interview you if you have a good idea and you're interesting. So um, until next time on the Rockney cast.